0: Hello, my name is Eric Scott, and I have a public service announcement. In this podcast, you will hear me mention my previous musical works, and I had a glaring omission, forgetting to mention my co-producer of not one, not two, not three, but four of my previous albums. That co-producer would be the mellifluous and magnificent scott smith of the great baltimore band naked blue and i would be remiss if i did not clarify and correct my mistake and mention it to you now with that being said please enjoy the rest of this podcast thank you
1: hello everyone and welcome to episode three of medicine for the dead we had uh thoughts of making an intro and introducing ourselves but we didn't do that and we have some guests today so we were just gonna skip that for next time what do you think matt
2: uh, that's fine with me um i i feel like it's clear to anybody listening to this that we don't know what the fuck we're doing. So
3: uh, I, Let's just let that
2: be what it is. It's BJ, uh, Christian, Matt, and Josh. Those, those are the four people that you've heard if you've listened to any of the other ones. You two people in Poland or whoever the fuck that was. <laughs> yeah.
1: Poland and France now. We have France, France as well.
2: Ooh, la, la. We're international. We
1: have Very nice. a couple different states and two countries.
2: But we do have two incredibly notable, notorietized guests. Yes. You want to you introduce, introduce them? Are they notary publics? Shut the fuck up, man. With your Sorry, bad oh, joke. that's right. That's your job is knowing words. That is that's your gig on this. That's
4: not a big word. That's just a <laughs> dumb
2: joke. That's I, like a dad joke. I, I'm a dad. So fuck oh, off. Oh, you are a dad. Yeah. That's fair.
1: That's fair. Focus, guys. Sorry. Shut it's up, unlikely. All right. So, I remember exactly how I met both of you. Darren, we'll get to you in a second cuz that shit fucked me up for like months.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Eric, however, Eric played in the Deanna Bogart band for how many
0: years? uh, 23 years before I left, and it's still, I'm still kind of an official member, unofficially, however you want to look at it.
1: All right, so I phrased that wrong. So So, you've been in the DMW? Since 95. 95, '95. all right. So when my uncle, Mike Aubin, the drummer, joined that band in 1995, or around there, I remember coming to a gig when I was probably 10 years old, and I remember walking into some sort of amphitheater, and Cajun had, Cajun Kelly, fine guitar player, had a gold top PRS. And I remember the biggest bass player in the world, and my (laughs) uncle back there, and this crazy lady playing the piano. And I just remember, like, it's you know, when you're 10, things are huge. So it's just like you guys were like, oh, these magical people. And then I remember you doing a scat solo, which I didn't have any idea what that was. It was just like, how was he doing that? (laughs) So you were just a scat solo with the bass, right? Is that what it was? Like a unison line thing? Yes. And uh, that was intimidating, even for a 10-year-old that didn't know about music yet. And then there was Darren, who I met as a (laughs) grown-up. I was at an incredibly hot gig in, I think it was Alexandria, somewhere down there? Yep, Alexandria. And uh, I was playing my super hard rock show in a super hot day, and I just felt someone was behind me. Like, huh. You just get that feeling. And I look back and there's the biggest person I've ever seen in my life. Arms crossed and just the perfect like judgy drummer face. Just like... <laughs> <laughs> just like mouth kind of like closing to the side. Fucking observing. And I was like, well, that's kind of scary. And then I like kept playing and then I felt it again. I looked over and he's like changed sides and I was on my right side. Completely in view though. Like right in my peripheral. It's like, God damn it. And I didn't know who you were so I didn't know you were a drummer yet. And then like Again, you've moved over here. I just felt you, like, moving around me. And then you walked up afterwards, and we're like, man, that's some rock and roll shit or something. <laughs> 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 and then we talked about metronomes, and then you, you know, it all started there. But these two are very good friends of mine, and they are our guests today to talk about
2: whatever we got to talk about. To clarify, that's Eric Scott and Darren Blessman. I did not do guests. that, today. No, I did, though. Damn. I got you back. All right, good. All good. At least one of us got it. <laughs> amateurs. Thank
4: you, Matt. Mm.
2: Somebody's Mm got to
1: do it. So, Eric, why don't we start on this here record you're about to put out? Yes. Peace Bomb. Is there a reason it's not Peace Bombs? No. No. (laughs) I mean,
0: I think the more Peace Bombs we drop on the world right now, the better. You know, But I just kept it singular. Um, It's just strange. I mean, when I was writing that tune, I was trying to come up with a way to say, you know, to talk about the sentiment of just spreading peace but saying in a way that i've never heard it said before so in my warped way of thinking i thought well you know a bomb when a bomb drops it spreads all this destruction what if a bomb dropped and it just spread peace all over the place wouldn't that be cool that
1: would be cool it would be very cool so that's where the title came from anyway that's fun yeah so why don't you kind of walk us through the process of making a record
2: this is a, we've got a bunch of musicians in the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So, what, what was the? Uh, we haven't really talked about music at all yet, have we? That was a guideline early on was that it wasn't just a podcast about music, but we happen to have two incredible, yeah. bona fide, badass musicians as guests this particular time. I think it's a, a reason to deviate from that rule, right? Like, well, that was the idea. Are we all? Do you agree with that too, Josh?
5: Absolutely. All right, <laughs> Just making sure. Give me music talk. That's right. I need all more right. music talk.
2: There you go, buddy. So.
1: When you're going to do a record like this, where do you like start? You don't just decide to make a record, do you? Are you just kind of like making demos? or What's the process for that? Well, I hadn't released a record since 2012,
0: so I knew that I had to do something. And I had quite a bit of demos. Uh, I knew I wanted to try some different things. I can tell you this, that the way that record was made, I probably will never do it again because it took too long. Uh, I would probably just get four dudes together, rehearse for two weeks, go in, three days, record done, boom, see you later. So was
2: this a, a write and produce in the studio in real time? Is that why this it took was, so long?
0: Yeah, this this was, you know, like I wanted to do horns, I wanted to do cho- choirs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I kind of did it real piecemeal over a long period of time, you know, basically like tracking rhythm section, And one day, okay, let's come back. Then doing guitar overdubs in one day. Man, that's costly, you know, in a big studio. So we did it slow and by piecemeal, but I love the results, you know. When it comes to recording, there's there's, just so many ways to go about it. That just happens to be the way I did it. Did it real slow over a long period of time and was real meticulous about it. But
2: I love the results. Is that the first time that you've done a record with that mentality? Because, like, so I'm... But both having been on the playing side and the engineering side and some of the production side, I I find that those are two entirely different mentalities, right? Mm -hmm. You take a band of people who've been playing the same 10 songs for two years. They've worked out the nuances. They walk in. They play that stuff down. You polish it with a little bit of production and you send them out the door with that product. And then there's this other element. You've got 10 ideas and you want to flesh them out in a way that has nothing to do with if you'll ever perform them that way. Was that the first time you got a chance to do that? Yes, yes. Because
0: I don't really have a band per se I mean I'm lucky that Darren and, and Dan Leonard play with me 99% of the time mm-hmm. so I was going into the studio never having played these songs before showing people you know the songs on the spot letting them interpret it the way they wanted to um that really is the way that I've always recorded um again I don't know that I'll ever do that again because it just took, <laughs> it just took a long time mm-hmm. you know
5: how close do you think the end product came to what you envisioned initially?
0: I'm, I honestly have to say it came out way better, uh, I, I, even nice. though yeah, it really did, man, because, well, number one, I had a producer. Okay. Uh, every record I've ever done up to this point, I produced myself. And, of course, I got Jim Ebert to produce this, and he just really, uh, you know. Jimmy. Jim, right? I mean, <laughs> he's he, definitely he was, got a way he does things. Yes, too. he does. Yeah. He's got a way he does things. And Very He cool. just really pushed me and and uh, forced me to think outside the box on some things. And uh,
1: so you guys didn't double anything, right? It was all just mono tracks down the line, or is it like? No, we did some double. Oh, I know. I was kidding. Yeah, I was going to say. Wait a minute, BJ. You can't be sarcastic we, we and say it. some shit that we, average
2: we, people would have no idea what you're we, talking we about, do, we BJ. We had a little fun with it though. Come on, explain doubling, BJ.
1: Two, Josh. There's two of the thing. <laughs> <That's a W. laughs> double
2: drum. drums. So like 200
5: percent more track is what you're saying.
2: <laughs> That's cool though, man. Like, so I, I have a. I, I, love, I know we're just kind of getting real techie about this, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. So, having done the production side of things, typically for your own material, mm-hmm. were there elements where Jim? forced you to think less like a musician and more pragmatic or more like an outside listener, or less like, be, took you away from being so close to the music? Like, what what happened that he did as a producer that you wouldn't have done on your own? He came up with some whack ass ideas. That's what I'm talking about. So explain you know. explain what you mean.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, one song in particular, you know, Something Good, yeah. Something Good. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get some like sassy background vocals, you know, so I got Mary Langford, Jenny Langerton, and two sassy, sassy mamas and uh, brought them into the studio. So they were doing these background parts that I had envisioned. Great. So we're tracking the song and we got to this one part and Jim like says, hey, I want you girls on this part to go. She cooking, she cooking. And I'm like, what? Huh? (laughs) She cookin', she cookin'. And I looked at him like, I don't hear that, man.
3: <laughs> <laughs> this is so job! I love it, I love but it.
0: I don't, I don't know about that, man. It's just like, just humor me. That became his byline. Just humor me. Let's just try it. It's just tape. Record it, you can always edit it. Right. Now I cannot hear that song any other way. Ah, that's right. I, I thought it was the dumbest idea ever when he said it, but it was great, you know? And you just gotta give the ideas a chance, man, even if they make no sense to you at the outset.
1: There's so many things in like R&B and like certain kinds of styles of music that like out of context, I would just never be into that. And then when you hear it in the right place at the right time, it's like magical.
2: And I would never think to do that at the moment. Right. Well, so one of my mentors from North Carolina, this guy, Chris Gargis, incredible drummer, great engineer, uh, fabulous producer, um, hit me to, you know, the concept of like, you can't take every single track that you're going to put down and listen to it individually and go, oh, you know, that's not wide enough. That guitar doesn't sound big enough or whatever. It's got to have a, a reason to exist sonically and sometimes, you know, a tiny, you know, 10 watt amp that sounds like total horse shit by itself, you drop that hard to the left and you and you you compress it or squeeze it or do some element to it that makes it have its own life and suddenly this ugly sound is the most identifiable yeah. thing on the track in the best possible way and, and, and it takes a long time to learn that I think, as a player, um, if you're walking in and, and it's your part, like you have this part, and you're so you're so married to it, and suddenly it doesn't do the thing that you thought people would give a shit about, but then you step back and you listen to the piece, and it makes it a better piece of music, and that's a hard lesson to learn, I think
1: That's like the first lesson you learn with recording in general, right? You just yeah, learn to like play for the song instead of yourself. Like I remember when I was like eighteen, you just just dicking off over the thing. All the and making a mess out of stuff, yeah. and then you listen to it, it's like, "Oh, well, that was terrible." <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, there's really
0: no such thing as a bad idea until it proves itself to be a bad idea. Right. In other words, I mean, I've learned to just be completely open minded. All right, let's try it. Right on. Either it'll work or it won't. Yeah. And I'm glad that I learned that lesson because a lo- most of it has ended up sticking. When you just, you know, leave your ego at the door and just be willing to try anything.
2: Can we can we try a slightly different, like a little shift with this? I want to ask Darren to describe your experience as a player on somebody else's record because I think that's a perspective probably not a lot of people. Oh, we're gonna go so deep on the. Drums oh, we are. Okay. okay. That's. Okay. Well, I was. No. was Wait. He's Uh-oh. checking his phone. I'm like, drummer. Darren, you get ready, man. I'm we're drummer. gonna talk <laughs> to drums. In a second. But I'm, I'm, before we talk about. The 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 drum playing aspect. I mean more walking in as a, a as somebody who has. Um integrity as a musician and ideas and, 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 a certain set of skills. And now you're working for somebody else in an, in a creative environment. Right. And that's something I think that's really foreign to people. They don't, if you've never been hired to play a creative instrument in a, in a position where somebody else is telling you how to be creative or what they want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Can you give your, your, like your uh, perspective on that in this? Cause it, it, you know, you played on this record, so it's, it would be relevant.
3: I always walk into a situation like that, again, like Eric said, leaving me, my ego at the door. And it's, I never have any preconceived notion as what I want to do. It's what is, what is the record calling, what is the record speaking to me and telling me to play? If he's not going to tell me what to play, then what is the record telling me, what is the song telling me to play? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's pretty much always my approach. Um, I kind of – I like direction Mm -hmm. because I think a certain way, and if I always do it the way I hear it, then I'll never grow. So I'm always looking for somebody to tell me to do something outside of my own muscle memory – to expand me. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I go with that.
1: That's fun, too, because you're playing off someone else's ideas, so it's not just like you versus the song. It's like a collective effort to make a part, mm-hmm.
2: and then you can be creative inside of that window. And it's cool how those parts will sometimes end up being like, man, that was kind of like one of the coolest things. i yeah. played on that record, and you never would have done that on your own. Exactly. You, you yeah. hate it in the moment, yeah, exactly. too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like Eric yeah. was saying. It's not a bad idea. It just wasn't your idea. Right. So <laughs> you got to get comfortable with it. Yeah. No, I totally. do that. Yeah. How do you keep your... Uh, the
1: the player aspect in check when you're in those situations. Like I know you're like a machine gun if you want to be, but you don't pull that out unless you really want to either make a little boy feel bad, which you did to me in your basement. <laughs> real bad. <laughs> it's like we'll go home and practice now. But if you're in the studio and you have all this stuff in your brain, like how are you sorting through those ideas and pulling out the ones that are actually going to make the cut on the record?
3: Again, well another another real uh, one of my main approaches always still less is more. Um, I like the, my my style is one of playing with space. If there's ever a place somewhere that I could leave a hole, I'm leaving a big asshole for something mm-hmm. else to go. Yep. You know, when <sighs> I think that there's an evol- an evolution, an evolutional growth to being a musician. All of us started out as drummers or as bass players. And everything is about your approach, your facility as a bass player, or your facility as a drummer. At some point, you start to make a shift, and it's more of being a musician voicing your musical ideas through that instrument. And you don't approach it anymore as a drummer, you approach it as a musician. Right. And to me, that's, those are the guys that work the most.
1: That's a really good point. <laughs> Everyone yeah. out there should take notes right now. No, those is.
3: are the guys that get all the work. The guys that come in, I mean, there's a ton of guys out there, man, that are basement all-stars. They got chops out the wazoo. And they're used to superstars, but you will never see them on a gig. You know? And i i like I like musical interaction. I like playing in front of people. And I found that the more you serve the music. Like, I can always tell when I'm listening to a band if the bass player is listening to himself play or if he's listening to the band. Same thing with the drummer. I can always tell if they're listening to what they're doing. (laughs) Why are you calling me out like that? Since he's calling me out now. (laughs) I got to say about that, Matt. (laughs) I got something to say. Man, fuck y'all. That's all I got to say. (laughs) You know, but and that's my my approach is always listen to, listen to your surroundings and play to that, yep. you know. Like if I'm ever on a gig and the bass player just got a lot of shit he want to say, then I'm a quarter note motherfucker all night long. Get out of the way, yeah. <laughs> and I just let him do his thing, you know.
1: And sometimes that works because if okay. somebody's got too much to say, you just pull out of that and then it's actually cooler because yeah. there's space for it to yeah. action. Somebody cool has thing. to
2: hold the line for those things yeah. to make. Yeah, for to for you to play out some somebody has to define what's in, yeah. right? It has to happen. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah.
1: a line there though, guys. Whoever's listening, girls, guys. You don't need to do that every gig. No. <laughs> just because somebody gives you the room doesn't mean you need to take it.
3: <laughs> but yeah, man, I just like I said, I just I'm I think I learned that lesson in 90, around 97 when I joined Marianne Redman's band. And between her, I mean, playing drums behind Marianne Redman and Mike Alt on guitar and Steve Taylor on bass and Benji Perecki on on keys, I just wanted to listen to all that badass shit mm. that was going on around That's me. That's a good-ass band. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't want to play nothing. I was like, boom, bap, boom, bap. like... Oh, listen to
1: this! I think that's where I first saw you, and I had no idea what you could do because of that. You were just so out of the way. The band was amazing, and I was watching this, and Darren just didn't do anything, so I didn't know Mm -hmm. until until I learned when you taught me.
3: (laughs) So when you come to the house and we're doing the basement all all star thing, then all bets are off, and it's all about drums. Oh yeah, at that point,
2: and there's no audience. No, that, no. That just changed things, right? Audience of one and I stopped playing I just it went, just "What does. did you just do?" <laughs> so so uh, to, to, you know, just to kind of make a note here for anybody listening that's in Poland or France or whatever, like the the list of of players he just gave is like the DC equivalent of, you know, Stevie Wonder on keys and, you know, it's just like a whole list of people who are the real fucking deal. And that's something else I'd like to get into with you guys is the fact that the music industry is so much bigger than, you know, the what people generally think it is like there's so many more well not right fucking now but normally there's a lot more work and a lot more positions that we can all take up both creatively and 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 functionally as players Mm -hmm. Um, and and there are people that we know and that we work with and that we hear play regularly that are as good as anybody that I've ever heard. You know, I think that's very true. And not all scenes have that, mm-hmm. but a lot of scenes do. You know, and I think this the Baltimore D.C. scene has some of the best fucking players I've ever heard, man. Oh, dude, there was one night at a uh, was it Harp and Fiddle,
1: one of those jams made me go to. <laughs> yeah. And it was Prince's band, right? It was a uh, who showed up? Who was the? Was that when Mono? Oh, you're talking
3: about when um. Mike Scott came in and played ba- uh, guitar, and, guitar uh, player.
1: And the bass player from, who's the guy to play with Britney Spears and some other weird big stuff? Oh, uh,
3: not Kevin Walker? It Kevin, yeah, Walker. Kevin Walker. Oh, yeah. he and did uh,
1: the drummer who did a, he played with JT. Yeah, just um And there was a drummer who also played with Prince, I think. That's what I was told anyway. Anyway, it was, the, I forget who the drummer was, but it was the baddest group of people I've ever seen in my entire life in one place mm-hmm. at one time. It was just like, they destroyed things. And this motherfucker signed me up <laughs> for the open mic. <laughs> and after getting my face mopped with on the floor, I get, oh, BJ Corwin, would you please come up in the drums? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck no. <laughs> no. Alright, let's get back to this record for a second. so, <laughs> Trying to trying to go back and forth. we're not good at the interview thing. We already confessed to this. We haven't to the to the crowd yet. That's so true. Uh, yeah.
5: I think we're doing great, BJ.
1: Keep I think going. so too. Thanks, Josh. So Eric, when you're like when you're writing a tune and you're thinking about what he's gonna do, how involved are you in his part or is that more like a production thing or is it just kind of speaks for itself or I
0: usually I mean I trust Darren's instincts implicitly there there are times where i say darren give me i'm hearing you know boom tap or boom he darren has his, his thing he's like the eric scott groove which is doomed. <laughs> i can see the <laughs> which, hi-hats now. which a lot of the songs are doomed
2: Oh, the Airs you want the air Scott groove? <laughs> yeah, give me the air Scott groove. <laughs> okay, first of all, how many people have their own groove? Right. That's pretty that, fucking well,
0: that's only <laughs> this guy right here. Oh, well, I'm <laughs> but I, there are times where I might say, "Hey, give me that groove." But what he does from that point on is—is is him, and it's always right. You know, when you guys were talking, I—I I, I just got to tell you this. I mean, when you were talking about the harp and fiddle and, and the way Darren approaches the drums, I remember walking into the harp and fiddle. Just showing up on a Sunday night when you were playing with Marianne, and as soon as I walked in, you were doing a solo. I think I told you this story, and I just walked in, and and Darren was playing a solo, and I was in the back, and I swear to God, it was like I was looking at like one of the best, ba- you know, like like a super high level professional. He was just fucking the drums up man I mean he was playing and he was playing so so competently like I could have sworn I was looking at like a just you know a high level arena drummer but Darren you know basically if you see him play he just he's just holding it down but he can bust out the whooping stick when need be you know and I think that's the mark of a real seasoned musician but in regards to that record it's really just you know just Darren just listening to the music and and doing his thing man
2: man so another thing about your plan, while well, we're all talking about how fucking great it is, damn,
3: <laughs> I'm eating this shit up. Y'all go ahead.
2: <laughs> one of the one of the first and few times we've gotten a chance to play like a whole gig together, um, the things I remember most about that gig were those spaces, right? Where we would be, we the pocket would be there, and it would feel great. And then we both would just hear a moment, and there'd be like five beats of nothing, like exactly. just <laughs> massive fucking hole. And neither of us would step on it or do anything yeah. with it. And then we would come back in, and that re entrance would be more powerful mm-hmm. than. Any bullshit either of us could have played at that point right and and and, it, and we just look at each other and go
3: oh <laughs> shit. Oh, that was <laughs> and,
2: and, and that I feel like at least in my you know, to me that was a chance to be learning from what it is that you do in that moment like I was like oh I see where you're going with this and I totally agree it wouldn't have been my first choice because I'd have too much to say but like <laughs> it, like clearly but um it, it was it was so I don't know man like it was uh I don't want to say it was spiritual because that's not where I come from, but I—I I, it was, you know, it was powerful in a way that was like, oh, we're, it felt like we were on the same path at the same time, and and I feel like any time I've seen you guys play together, I mean, that's just happened constantly. It's it's just like a big part, not necessarily that the big whole thing, but you guys being on the same path at the same time, it just it's it that is so fun to watch and listen to. It's like it's so powerful, you know. And anyway, I just, you know I'm just fan fan geeking out. There's <laughs> something
1: about stops too, like like. When you're on stage and you you laugh the hardest, like that's when you're playing your best, you know? Mm-hmm. My favorite part is when you get into one of those situations and you hit one of those stops that makes no sense and shouldn't be there, but you and somebody else just lock the fuck in and it's just like
3: ah!
1: <laughs> <laughs> like you just can't help but just fucking fall over yourself. That's really powerful. I love it. it.
3: I, I would just say I read a book. I don't know if if you guys have ever read Victor Wooten's book, The Music Lesson. Very intense powerful book for musicians and if you haven't read it read that shit but he talks about how important and how powerful silence is like if you're in a room and there's a whole lot of shit going on as soon as you suck it down everybody will go and silence draws people in Mm. you know because as long as there's noise really nobody's paying attention but as soon as you suck it down everybody goes uh oh What's that? What's gonna happen? Yeah, something's about that. And that's how you bring people to you, mm-hmm. you know. Sometimes, I I think that. I think not. An, I think not enough drummers specifically understand how important the rest note is. It's a note. It's just a rest.
1: For sure, but it's like. There's all the stuff you can hit, and your hands are just waiting. <laughs> it's like, well, I could stop, but I could also fucking play, play right <laughs> now. and Stop.
2: Those shoes aren't gonna put themselves in the dryer.
3: You <laughs> know. Uh, but so, that's that's just me. That's just how, that's my flow. That's so.
2: So in a in a in a creative direction, I'd like I'd like to take this back to Eric, and I'd like to chime Josh in on this. So Josh, also, um, you do quite a bit of writing with your band, and um, I I, w- I would like to see if maybe you had some questions about the creative process or any of that stuff that we haven't already started to sort of pull the, the tease out you know go ahead man
5: i'm just enjoying this conversation and thinking about how much i miss live music you know ditto as, as me too someone playing but as as just watching it and, and taking it in and i just was gonna ask how you guys are how you guys are doing <laughs> like how are you guys handling not having
0: you
2: know that's you know, or
5: are you guys playing any shows at this point
2: that's a great question who wants
0: to tackle that first? I could damn sure use a gig. I mean, I really could. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They are few and far between right now. Um, I mean, I did a gig today, thank my lucky stars. I played at a golf tournament. That's why I came in dressed in my khakis and my <laughs> golf shirt. But, hey, a gig's a gig. That's um, right. Yeah. We don't know what the landscape's going to be for live music, but um, all my gigs are drying up. They really are. And it's forcing me to start thinking about some some alternative revenue sources, really.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know,
0: we were
5: uh, we we're talking about or you guys were talking about harp and fiddle and the news just came out i think last week that they're they're shutting down Yeah, yeah. Um, it's closed so, yeah it's just like yeah. you said the the opportunities are kind of drying up even you know if we can make it out of this
1: those staple venues too are just like they're so important and they're they're going away yep. because they aren't they're not nine thirty clubs they're not the Fillmore you know they're just not like backing behind
2: them. They're just, just a fucking cool bar that happened to have some of the best musicians in the world pop mm-hmm. through I think that's the thing about it like even you know you can even talk about Baltimore in that same way I mean it's just you know like you and and Todd Miller and John on tuesday nights like who is going to walk around and hear a band play that well and it not and it be free. You walk in off the street and hear music that is is comparable to to anybody in the country. And I mean that stuff's not so. It's not. It's not even monetarily supported. You know, it's not like they're getting subsidies to keep art in there any kind of bullshit like that. Like they you know, we don't have, um, you know, a, a super strong union in in Baltimore that's keeping us all afloat. You know, like uh, you, you talk about a city like New York, or you talk about you know places where. There's an infrastructure at least for some of the arts communities. We don't have any of that around here. And yet we still have players that rival anybody anywhere. And, and to see this happen and see this happen to all of us, you know, and, and, and see that go away is incredibly painful. Uh, and not, not just monetarily, like just emotionally, like what the fuck is it going to feel like? You know, how's this going to feel when it's gone? Because like, we, I don't even think we took it for granted. I, I know both you guys are always, you, you speak highly of the the things you get involved in and you work incredibly hard and you show up and you play amazingly well and and so it's not like we were taking it for granted but like it's even more powerful now with the idea of it just all being gone I mean it's such a slap in the fucking face it's unbelievable
1: and just for people that don't play because I'm sure there's plenty of you that that don't what would you let's go with Eric what would you say is like the thing that you miss about a gig like why is that such a magical thing that we all get basically addicted to right like you just can't stop doing it (laughs) oh man Oh god, I, I don't it's
0: more than one thing. I mean, I have to have the energy, the reciprocal energy of playing for someone, you know. I do. Um I miss that. I miss that. I miss all the things you guys were just talking about, playing with the drummer and and being in sync and stopping at the same time and looking at each other and going, "Man, that was pretty cool." Just, <laughs> you know, having that eye contact about doing something. Um all of it man and uh, you know my checkbook really misses it that's, <laughs> that's
2: a big <laughs> thing the most. That's a very big <clears> thing <throat> you know yeah. what about you Darren? <laughs>
3: um i i i miss like it, i miss the people yeah i miss the interaction of um of of seeing an audience audience people in the audience that are really really into it like a lot of times man I, I'm 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 on a gig and I'm playing and everything is right, but I always find somebody usually in the audience that's either tapping their foot or nodding their head, and I try to see how long I can keep them doing that mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know,
1: I do the exact same thing. I how long somebody... can I
3: keep that shit
2: going? Yeah, you but f- but then you you do it and then you reverse the beat. BJ, so you can make them fall over. There's, there's there's, there's two things I do. You're a lot more malicious. Like Darren's like, man, I just want to feed into their vibe, and you're like, I'm hoping they drop a drink. That's like,
3: (laughs) (laughs) yes,
1: yes. There's two schools of thought for that, though. I love the the fuckery of drunk people, and I can like, because you know, as drummers, nobody really. Realizes this, but we fucking own you. Like when you're playing and you're dancing,
2: and here's you're, a secret. That's just what you think.
1: Well, man. it's definitely what I think. But, <laughs> but we have we make the decision as to whether or not you get to dance any longer. So you go. some people don't deserve to dance any longer, and I make sure they know that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the other one, you know, when you're in, when you're, when your band's great, everything's going good, and you feel everything, and it's just like the perfect moment. You look out and you see one person that's just completely fucking locked in. That's the that's the moment that's like the best thing for me. When you can just yeah. like, it doesn't matter what you're playing, and it comes down to like the first time I saw Darren. Like it was just pure pocket, and it felt amazing, and it just makes you dig deeper into that. And it doesn't matter, no fills, and nothing else matters.
2: Except symbiotic at that point, right? Like yeah. they they the musician gives more, and the audience gives more and you both like kind of keep oh, going that up and up go through and up. The roof. That's Woo. what they mean when oh, they
3: yeah. say, tear the roof off this motherfucker. <laughs> it just goes back and forth. <laughs> and before you know it, boom, mm-hmm. it's gone.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's
3: awesome. Yep. That's yeah. definitely true. I mean,
0: I can definitely speak artistically. I mean, you can speak to this. You've written a bunch of songs. And uh, there's nothing, there's, there's not a better feeling, man, than than doing a gig and playing some new original material that you've never played and jumping off that cliff Mm -hmm. and not knowing where you're going to land you know and then at the end of the show you know somebody telling you hey man you know I really dug your new tune or they keyed in on a certain lyric you might not have thought anyone was listening but they are listening man and it's not why we do it we don't do it for that validation but it's gravy, you know, when you, you put your heart and soul into something artistically and it resonates with people. I miss that. I, I do, man.
1: That's the thing, too, man. I like that, when somebody comes up and like, everyone's always giving, there's some sort of compliment involved with, you know, performing. But that person that comes up that got the thing that right. nobody knows about. Yes. That oh. little. Yes. Yeah, there you go.
0: That's exactly what I'm expecting. Thank you, yep. DJ, for succinctly. Describing that I th- for me Because I,
1: I don't play My own songs out In the public But <laughs> every now and again Somebody <laughs> goes You got a double bass drum pedal I'm
2: like nope
3: <laughs> Yes <laughs> You know right what even, it.
2: even more so what, what I find Like so we're, we're Speaking from the perspective Of people who play A particular instrument Right It's bass players And drummers um, But when somebody Comes up to you And they're like Man the bridge of that song With that one vogue That shit was so And they don't give a fuck About what you played On that part yeah. The song Blew yeah. yeah. their mind yeah. Then it's like okay that counts that's yes. the shit right there because yeah. you don't have to worry about if that person is learning to play your instrument and cares about that aspect of it or is somehow um wanting to connect with you in that way you know because that, that often happens to us like the, the, the guy who comes up or girl who comes up and says you know i play this instrument and you suddenly have to figure out like you, you, how you connect in that way that's a whole different thing when they're like musically you just blew my fucking mind and that to me, at least, that that goes so much further. I'm so much more excited, and then I want to talk to that person. I'm like, man, like, yeah, that's what we wanted out of that part. We right, we right. we start the bridge in this way, you know. And we yeah. cut these two beats off because we all fucking love that part, you know. Whatever, and and that excitement to me is it's a huge payoff, right? And and it's not even validation at that point. It's almost like um, you're you're in this agreement, like you're you're like like you like you. Somebody else is in the club. They got it. They heard what it was that you were trying to get across, right? And that feels. Um, Like acceptance, not validation, right? Right. It feels like being... It's inclusive, you know? Or something. Yep.
1: Yep. So I made a note about one person that's going to tie into a bigger thing. So you said... Was it Mary Lankford that did some backup vocals? Yes, she did. So me, Eric Scott, and Mary Lankford have a gig in common. (laughs) Do we ever. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That I almost forget about. So... I'm a drummer, that's my thing, but I have the most fucking crushing backup vocalist credits in the world. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Prepare yourself, internet. For, yeah, here it comes for BJ yes. to So we'll, we'll, play get, to, with we'll himself get to the good on one, there. one
1: in a second. But when I was like uh, probably like nine or ten, I was one of Michael Jackson's Heal the World kids. Oh nice Where are you? at Clinton's inaugural gala when the kids come around the thing. I was one of those kids. I oh, was wearing that's killer. Now
5: look at you. Now look at me.
2: <laughs> Things w- have just gone down. I, I was wearing a
1: fucking Lederhosen <laughs> and I was representing Germany, which I'm not even German, so I'm not sure why I was in Lederhosen, but that's how that worked. Went up on the thing and you had
5: a beard at ten years old. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: oh, oh,
0: oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh that's totally fair. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> oh my god and uh fun facts about that i fell on the way up the stage so i face planted in front of ten thousand people and the continental united states and And michael uh, jackson yeah but he was he was you know doing stuff at the time and uh the girl in front of me i I stepped on her shoe and uh her shoe came off so she went up with one shoe i face planted (laughs) heal the world fuck it
3: (laughs) oh jeez.
1: gig number two of my incredible backup vocalist which i am not credits, was with Eric and Mary Langford, and we were backup singers for Roger Waters for one show. Yes. Why don't you just talk about that experience, because I'm... Wow, I mean,
0: I'll never forget getting getting a call from you. Hey, Eric. I <laughs> got this gig. Oh, yeah? What you got? Well... Uh, BJ works, of course, with the Music Corps. At that time, he was working with the Music Corps band, yep. and uh, he can tell you more about that, but... One of the big supporters of the Music Core band, you know, along with Sheryl Crow and Tom Morello and G.E. Smith and Billy Corrigan, is Roger Waters. And he called and asked if I wanted to be a background singer and <laughs> one of Roger Waters' shows at Constitution Hall. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> of course I do. And, and the show, I mean, the show in itself was pretty amazing. But wouldn't you agree the most amazing part was the week of rehearsals? Yeah every day being in a rehearsal at Omega Studio with Roger Waters Billy Corrigan you know it was just it was, it was incredible man
1: that whole experience was just wild from start to finish like when, you, when I called you about that I had gotten tapped in and I'm not a fucking singer I'm just like a dude that plays the drums and was teaching veterans and it was awesome and then Roger Waters has a lust for backup singers like he just needs them he's just like the way it was described to me he's like yeah let's give me some more backup <laughs> <laughs> you guys we got a choir in here man I just need a little more choir so we just kept recruiting and recruiting and recruiting and finally it got down to me and they were like, hey, you're in. And I was like, I'm what?
3: <laughs> 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 I mean,
1: okay. <laughs> and they were like, we need more. And I was like, uh, I got a guy. <laughs> and I was grateful to get that call. I really was. I mean, that was, you know, what can you say? A
0: light, a once in a lifetime experience, really.
1: It oh, yeah. It really was. And watching the uh, the rehearsals were super cool because watching G.E. Smith as a rock star translator So he would, like, Roger would go, "Ah, I'll be more shimmery or some... I forget what he sounded like. He was British, though. He's got some... uh, There's an accent in there. He was Britishy. Yeah. He wanted more shimmer. And then G.E. Smith would go, like, you just see him, like, making calculations in his brain. And, you know, years as a band director, he's just perfected the art of conveying information in a a setting like that. And uh, he would go to Roger. Roger would say something insane. And he'd be like, "Eh, got it. And he would walk around the room and tell everybody what change to make. And then everyone would do it perfectly. It was like... I've just never, I will never see anything like that That's like some
2: Jocko before the birthday concert shit right there, where he's like, play these 10 notes, and then it's like the intro to the chicken. Like, holy shit.
1: Even like, like, (laughs) one day Roger was like, I want a string quartet. And that so was just you know when Roger speaks, <laughs> things happen. The next day, there's a string quartet from the National from Symphony the National Orchestra. National Symphony Orchestra. That's right. <laughs> like, and they're next to me and Eric. And like the whole time, Eric and I are just like little kids, just like bumping into each other on the mic. Like, Can you fucking believe we're that's fucking right. in? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. It was crazy. And I, it was amazing
0: to watch. You know, Roger put all of that stuff. I mean, Roger, we're on first name basis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> me and Rog hanging out. Way yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wouldn't know me if he saw me. But, uh, but it was cool to watch him, you know, pull it all together. And, and did you notice that he had like a, he had like a self-deprecating vibe, like he would tell somebody to do something, like he would stop a song yep. and tell somebody to do, and then uh, there would be a pause and he would go. I could be wrong, you know. He would he would call
2: himself out, and I thought it was like really cool and human. That's pretty cool to see him say that, especially know? when you consider who Roger Waters is and all right. the drama with Pink Floyd and and how you know the band split in half essentially mm-hmm. when he left. And and that's 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 it, for him to be self deprecating. I feel like that says he, a whole. He fucking was. Lot He of was that. very. He had a little humility thing mm-hmm. going on, which I appreciated.
1: And we also saw a bit of a rock star like like titans colliding. Remember when uh, he and Billy Corgan were doing Wish You Were Here? And Roger was trying to tell Billy Corgan that he was rushing. And, you know, there's like 30 of us in the room, like engineers, sound guys, fucking the, the band's like a million people. There's like a, like a horseshoe of people around them. And they stop and have to like have a conversation about how Billy's speeding things up. And he goes, yeah, I've been known to
2: do that. And it was just like this weird. Oh, Billy said that. Billy said that, yeah. Because I was kind of expecting the opposite, where we have to all now agree that Billy Corgan has to listen to Roger Waters. Like... No, man. It was it was like
1: a it was like you just never get to see a rock star confront a rock star about some like musician stuff. And, and it like... turns
2: out they're both just fucking people. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But it's
1: like you know the most iconic people in the room for sure.
0: You are so right. Billy Corgan has you know I didn't know this until those rehearsals, but he has a birthmark on his hand. You know, one of his hands is is birthmarked. Mm-hmm. Just to your point, you know, they're just people. And did you notice that he spent a lot of time, like, he was holding onto that hand and just kind of trying to cover it up? I mean, I, and if you see pictures of him, he will be trying to kind of hold his hand over his birthmark. I thought that's just kind of, like, holding yeah, something, but that makes but, sense. But it, it's really pretty strange. They're just people, man. Oh, yeah. We're just people.
1: And that was just yeah. a,
5: It's funny. Even guys like that have their insecurities. Too.
0: Yeah. Indeed. Yeah.
2: Thank you. That is exactly so, yeah. right. So to to that point, um, I'd like to throw it to Christian for a second. The the non professional. Who's musician. Christian? Christian. Oh, there's a Christian here. <laughs> Christian is is, is a, a brilliant uh, woodworker. He he is. Uh, do you? Uh, what's your degree in art? Um, uh, de- oh, define who you a, are. That's
4: a mouthful. I have a bachelor's degree in sculpture from uh, the Maryland Institute College of Art, and a graduate degree in applied craft and design. From Oregon College of Arts and Crafts. The fuck do you do with that one? <laughs> Builds <Art>. furniture. <laughs> you make things. Uh, That's fair. Intellectually uh, tying the hand and the brain together, or something like that.
2: So Christian is an incredibly uh, smart individual, and he did start. Um, his life playing some music, um, but he hasn't continued to do that until recently. And I, I'd like to get let's see if you have some um, maybe more pedestrian questions or questions that we aren't we don't have the right angle. Pedestrian for these guys, I would fucking try to be a dick. Ham, <laughs> Fuck <laughs> y'all! Right boy, under the bus, right man. You got some dumb shit you want to say, Christian? Oh. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, you know some shit some fucking idiot would say. No, say, say it like, p- what am I supposed to say? Pedestrian
1: question, you fucking
2: asshole. <laughs> God <laughs> fuck y'all. Yeah. So Christian, Christian. I'm not sure. I feel a little bit <laughs> like I don't
5: know.
2: You fuck you too, Josh. <laughs> All the way on the other <laughs> side of the internet. I'll come in there. Out of here, drop D. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so drop far, D. so far.
4: Honestly, I feel a little. Hey, know, I play in drop out C, of my C elements. Okay, BJ, so. fuck you.
2: <laughs> that's a fair, sound, baby. Go ahead. Go ahead. Say say smart things.
4: Uh, no, I don't have anything smart <laughs> to say right now. Particularly right now. Um, honestly, I mean, I feel a little out of my element. So um, I think it's that's kind of just that's what I want to listen to the conversation. Uh, I did have an early you know, connection to music. Um, When I was, around the time I was applying for colleges, I almost went to college to study jazz, bass. Um, But probably, honestly, having something to do with insecurity and having uh, history with art already, that seemed like the easier path. And I ended up going to art school and did not really have much time to practice. And actually, part of... (laughs) Part of it is art school is very messy, and I had a $6,000 double bass that I didn't want to get destroyed in my dorm room. <laughs> so I took it back up to Rochester and just stopped playing. And I don't know, 20-something years later, uh, I'm just reconnecting with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably because yeah. I'm hanging out with BJ. and, and Well, yeah, uh, he
1: mentioned it one day, which is a terrible idea, by the way. Yeah. He, I was like, well, why don't you just get a goddamn bass and play it? Like, what's the holdup?
4: <laughs> well, I did on my 41st b- first birthday. I uh secretly bought myself a, a cheapy electric bass starter kit uh squire, thinking the bass, guitar. squire, bass. Yeah, squire yeah. bass which is you know good bass um got They're, me playing again and uh figured a bass guitar would just sit next to me on the ca- you know six ne- sit that sit next to my couch and it would be easy to just pick up and and play like even if i was just watching the tv and playing scales or something and mm-hmm. uh i do it i mean i'm kind of constantly pick the thing up and play. I mean I and I missed it. I mean it was really uh you know I missed that connection. BJ's been bugging me to come in and uh and play with play with you guys, which I still feel a little uh you know, out of my depth. But um, No, no,
1: no. I'm out of my depth with that motherfucker in the room right now. <laughs> but I will say to <laughs> tie it in with your Eric there's a hierarchy in this room right now. It, <laughs> Stop.
4: to tie it in with the conversation earlier, um, you know, for you guys who are not able to gig right now and not able to play with other people um you know the simplest analogy and that my my mentor when i was a teenager playing double bass was was that you know it's a language and you're you're learning to communicate with people well right now it's you know for you guys it's pretty hard to have a conversation by yourselves so that's something to miss and that's something that i miss i mean you know kind of feeling itchy to to get in and start playing with other people
2: so how have you guys (laughs) managed to um feed that side of yourselves or have you come up with a way without being able to perform like he's saying being able to speak that language um, are you guys getting a chance to just rehearse with people or anything like that either of either you guys
3: um, I have been uh, doing a couple um, videos you know where you um, like with Band House, Um, the most recent one that's going to come out pretty soon is going to be a compilation of musicians getting together and doing a version of i wish where basically what they do is they send me a skeleton track and i record myself and video myself playing that send it back and then somebody else records and videos and once everybody does their parts they kind of mesh it all together and make a video and make a video Mm -hmm. i've done i'm working on another one with um Playing with a group called Mysterious Traveler, which is the Weather Report tribute band. I am aware. And, <laughs> yeah.
2: Another incredible bass player. Scott uh, Ambush. Scott yeah, Ambush, Lord. And
3: yeah. we're doing a, a, a version that Chris Fisher arranged of uh, Palladium. Okay. I love so, that fucking song. Working on that one right now. Mm-hmm. But other than that, man, you know, I'm, I have gone, a lot of my practice time, I spend just, Putting on like records mm-hmm. again. I'm just back to doing that. Eric Scott Records, you know, Marianne Recordings, people that I that I've worked with. I just put their records on and shed their music all the time. Yeah, that's yeah. All, you know,
0: what about you, Eric? That's a really good question. I was thinking about it as you know, as Darren was was expounding on it. Um, the live stream thing has
3: yeah, we've been has been somewhat
0: stuff. of an outlet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's allowed musicians to get together you know and do performances virtually but uh how have i been feeding it i'm just missing the shit out of playing with people. starving a little bit yeah i really am i mean i there's there's really not much of a substitute for it you know there's really no substitute for interacting with different musicians and being on the spot and playing live music with them you know
2: yeah, the one one of the few things about all this that I, I've been really lucky in is, uh, you know, my wife is an incredibly fantastic musician. Um, not necessarily uh, in the styles that we all play in. She's a, a very, very fine classical clarinetist. She is better than all of us, just, yeah. just, just well, maybe not that. these two, cars, but <laughs> definitely better no. than you, you and I. But, um, but luckily, I have gotten the chance to, um, to do some stuff with her, and you know, on the internets, and that has been a lot of fun. I it, absolutely it was, saw the Radiohead cover that you oh, did. It was beautiful. Thank man. you, man. I, I'm glad you dug it. It, it, it really was just you know, it's so funny to to be with somebody for 20 years and both be passionate about music and just never really have the time to work together. I mean, that's really what it came to for us. And so having the chance or almost being forced out of our other disciplines and getting a chance to just kind of collaborate has been really, that's been really cool. I've I've found that as a plus. Um, Because otherwise, I'm in the same position you are. Even practicing feels so uh, it, it it almost hurts. It's like, it's like a, you pick the instrument up and you're like, man, this doesn't feel like it did five months ago. Cause I'm not playing six nights a week. And, 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 I'd like, the, you know, like, what do I even fucking want to play right now? What am I, what do I even, what do I even need to work on? You know, and, and, and you just start to feel, or at least I start to feel the weight of all that. And then it makes me look at my base and I'm like, I don't, man, I don't know if I want to have that conversation with myself right now. I don't, I don't feel that great about it anyways. Like, I don't want to be confronted with it. And then that's just one step in getting further and further away from it, just being part of my existence, right? Or at least that's the way it's felt for me, you know, and, and, I don't know, man, that's that's a, that's a a, I can't think of another time in my life that's ever even been remotely the case, you know?
1: Yeah, there's definitely a weird thing about, like, I've had to do, like, for session work and stuff, like, you take for granted the, the repetition you get from playing out, mm-hmm. you know, like, a couple nights a week or whatever. You're putting in hours of practice, essentially. And I would do a session and go to sit down to this thing that's, like, my happy zone, mm-hmm. and everything that I had to say there is, like, it's like, it's like you learn how to talk again. You know? Speech like, impediment or something. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. And then to sit down with a practice pad, almost in like a, fut- like a futile utilitarian way, just to, just to get enough of myself back together to accomplish the two hours of playing that I have to do just to wait again for the next session to come along, is like just bizarre. Yeah, man. But to speak to what you and your wife did, that was some of the coolest music I've heard in a really long time. I remember when you, when you did the Soundgarden ones, uh, the Black Hole Sun. Mm-hmm. I sat in bed and I was just having a fucking weird day. Like, we're all having weird days. And I was, like, almost crying with, like, my headphones. Listen to my friend Matt and his wife play this thing. Because it was just, like, the arrangement was beautiful and the way that you guys played together was so, like special. There's just not a better way to put that. It was just like intimate and perfect and just everything I needed all at once. And it was amazing.
2: Thank you, man. I appreciate that. You're it, welcome. It, it is interesting how, you know, we were talking about the relationship you have with people you perform with and and it's such a unique thing to have a, a, a spouse. First of all, so Jennifer and I are incredibly close just as humans. Like we would be really great friends even if we weren't together. You know, she's just a, somebody that I've, I've liked as a person and admired for a really long time. And I feel that same way about her playing. And I've listened to her play more than any other human on the planet. I mean, I was there, I heard her play in high school. We just happened to go <laughs> to that same high school. We weren't dating or anything. I just heard her, you know, and I was like, oh, that chick fucking can play. That's cool. And then, you know, we go, we, we go off to separate colleges and we have common friends and we start dating and I come down to hear her play all the time. And then we get married and we go to grad school together and I hear her play, I hear her practice. I, I wake up, you know, I'm a fucking rock musician, right? So I didn't, <laughs> I made sure none of my classes were before noon, you know? So, <laughs> so I'll play a gig until, you know, three in the morning and, and I'll wake up at, at 10 AM and she's in another room of the house practicing. And it's like, like that, that literally woke me up from my sleep for years. Nice. And so knowing how she sounds is, it's like second nature to me. So I'll hear her take a breath and know where she's going. Right. Yeah. And that made those moments. So all I had to do was speak my language to her. I was like, okay, well, this is the part of the melody I want you to play, and this is the weird guitar part I want you to squeeze in, and and this is a moment where I want you to drop out because I want to create some gravity here or whatever. In the original tune, it's like, you know, for the Black Hole Sun one, uh, it's very different than hearing bass guitar and bass clarinet play just a duo in this very kind of quiet... um, uh, you know, very contemporary way. I mean, what Soundgarden did was massive and powerful, which is why I loved that song, but also harmonically, that's just a really great fucking song.
1: Yeah, but when you, when you broke it down to that level, like the essence of the tune was so much more apparent, you know, and there's just nothing there. And and going back to the space we were talking about before, the spaces you guys put in that fucked me up bad. It was just like, <laughs> the way you guys, let's like kind of like, there was no staccato about it. It was just like, you just flowed into parts and they just sort of, appeared. I don't know how else to describe that.
2: <laughs> What's that Josh? I was
5: just saying it was a it was a haunting like rendition and it was Haunting's beautiful.
1: a better word. <laughs>
2: Thank you, ma'am. Tom <laughs> I mean Tom, it's a word. Tom Moon Tom Moon said about the um uh, Ed Tom moon is, a uh, for the internet is, uh, one of our favorite kind of local, uh, music slash, uh, promotional <laughs> slash, he's got, always got some shit to say kind of guy. I love him for that. Oh, and I love he, him to death. He's yeah. incredibly witty. And he, his review <laughs> of the, of the, um, of the radio hit tune was, um, go forth and listen to this, and if you do not find it haunting, hit yourself in the head with a hammer.
3: <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is that? That's amazing. But
2: anyway, whatever. That's, that 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 was a, a special thing. Yeah. It would never have happened. So fuck COVID, but also, I guess, thank you, you know, like in, the, in that moment.
1: And, and then like a, the same sort of thing with you, when you first started to try to do the... Uh Eric, pointing at Eric, Um, you were trying to do the live stream thing at first. Watching you be uncomfortable playing bass and singing was like a very, very, very strange thing for me to witness. And like sound checking basically over the phone, you know, through FaceTime or whatever. And Eric Scott, this fucking monster I've known since I was a little kid having this moment. It just broke us all. Like this thing has broken all of us. You know, nobody's nobody's invincible. Man. Well,
0: you hit it right on the head. Yeah. Josh, go ahead.
5: No, I was, I was just going to say, I think that's really kind of like the tragedy of, of all of this and the, the void that has been left without the music is we don't have it's, for lack of a better phrase, a safe space, you know, because even with all the shit that's going on around the world, we've always had that kind of comfort in, in playing music, playing and, and creating creating art and sharing that art with other people and building that community and all the, all the things that go in, into that and it's just we feel naked and (laughs) no place to go at this point so so eric Eric, did
2: you did you have something to say about that well
0: you know when once once covid came down and then everybody started doing the whole live stream thing and i kind of sat on the sidelines you know and then my work started drying up and i'm like well damn I, i think i need to do a live stream but at that point it was really hardcore and like people weren't even having people at their house you know and I'm like, well, how am I going to do a live stream? I don't play guitar well enough. So to BJ's point, I literally sat down and tried to figure out how I could accompany myself on just the bass right. and vocal and make it musical enough for an hour. And just like he said, I mean, I even though I did it a little bit at first before we were actually filming, once that damn phone was turned on, I was. I was trying to figure it out in front of whoever was watching. And I felt very naked, like Josh said. And, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know that, anybody should try to play music with just bass and vocal. You know, it, it's not... <laughs> if anyone's going to do it, though, it's definitely... <laughs> yeah, you yeah, you, get, you I don't qualify know. to get to make Your that song call. I, <laughs> I, I don't know,
3: E, I think you could pull, you, you, you got the gift, bro.
0: No, no, I mean, I it was very uncomfortable at first. I think I came into it a little bit, and I felt more comfortable near the end, but uh, that was, that was tough, man. But I miss it, and I think I might start doing it again.
2: One of the things that, that um, we kind of started down on that road was... You know, Josh had said we don't have a safe space with all the shit that's going on right now. Right. And um, I would maybe like to pivot a little bit to how unsafe the space is now. Right. Um, (laughs) uh, I I think mainly because that's the other thing we're sitting at home watching right through all this between losing our livelihoods. Um, and and being confined, then the, the the next step is is watching. Maybe the most social unrest. I mean, definitely in my lifetime, you know, being have been born well after, uh, you know, the civil rights movement in in the late '60s. Like I I, I like, I, my mind is blown, especially as a father of two children, and how strongly I feel about wanting them to do the right thing and respect people in a way that I would want them to watching all this happen, I, I, I think about it constantly. And I was wondering if either of you guys want to maybe start a, start that conversation a little bit.
3: Talk about not having the safe space and, and being uncomfortable. I, you know, I was thinking about uh, the first thing that came to mind when Josh mentioned that was I was thinking about a gig that I was doing at the Harp and Fiddle. And it was just one of those nights where everything was just on point. And I look up, and the bass player, Andres Holmstrom from Sweden, and the lead singer is Liz Briones, Latino, and the guitar player is Robert Sullivan, who's Irish, and me on drums, and an audience full of white, black, yellow, whatever you can think of, and everybody's getting along. Hmm. Music has power, and they've taken that away from us, you know. We we we're not able to to bring people together like that anymore. And COVID, I kind of see, I kind of see a blessing and a curse at the same time, because COVID is that silence in music that made everybody stop and really pay attention to the bullshit that's going on. If it wasn't for COVID. George Floyd just would have been suffocated. And that that 8 minutes and 46 seconds somebody would have been playing a freaking bass solo or a drum solo. But everybody was at home watching. And it's, you know, the the whole uncomfortable thing. Like, you know, you say you've never seen me, I don't I don't get upset. The only way to really I can take a lot, personally, directed at me, but I can't take you messing with my kids. You can't mess with my kids, my wife. That's, if you wanna push my button, that's what you do. And when the protest started after George Floyd's murder, and DC was crazy, and everything was, you know, everybody was downtown protesting, and I woke up one, one Monday morning, and I was like, man, I haven't talked to Darren. And I know him and Corey are probably downtown, you know, because they're both military. And I'm like, I know they're downtown, you know, doing something with this protest. And as I was reaching for my phone to call him, he called me. And I said, hey, man, what's going on? And he said, Pop. I said, have you been downtown? He's like, yeah. I said, how you doing? You okay? And he was like, it's crazy. This this thing is really bad. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, you know, I was down there this weekend, and I was guarding, just guarding a monument in uniform, and I said, I figured you were. And he said, black people were coming up to me, telling me, I mean, calling me like Uncle Tom and and sell out, and telling me that I wasn't invited to the cookout anymore, and that's that's one of those black things where that's what we do. We just want to have our cookouts and be left the fuck alone, you know, and when he said that, he's a lot like me. We're, we were known in the family as, as the badass ones, if you wanna say that. But when he said that to me, his voice cracked, like he was gonna cry. Yeah. And I'm kinda getting emotional now because I'm thinking about it. But when that happened, I kinda lost it. And Jenny heard me and I ran outside and I was just like I am now, because you're fucking with my kid. Yeah. And he's down there allowing you to protest. And you're going to tell him some shit like that. He's serving. And so when I got done with that conversation, I wanted to talk. I had to find out where Corey was because he's the other one that's in the military. So I called Corey up. And by the way, I was actually going to go to the protest that day, but Jenny was not at home. And I was like, I'm not going to go down there. And then she called me and said, hey, where are you at? And I'm downtown and she's going to be freaking out because she's not with me. So I don't go. So then I call Corey, and Corey's at work. And I, I said, What's going on, man? What's up? He said, Hey, Pop, let me call you back. I'm at work. Everything's cool. And I look at the phone, and I hang up, and I go, Why the fuck isn't he upset? Why isn't he freaking out? But he's never, he's not that guy. He's not the one in the family that loses it. Mm-hmm. It's just me and Darren are the ones who usually can't keep our shit together, <laughs> you know.
1: Which is so out of character.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, it's only when you mess with my kids. So he he calls me back later and he says, um, and I say, well, tell me what's going on, man. And so he says, well, he gives me the story from the other side, you know. He says because he went down that same day that Darren was down there, and he just wanted to go because he he he's a photographer, so he want, he's a photojournalist is what he calls it. So he just wanted to go down and take pictures and and see what was going on from the protest side of the civilian side. Mm -hmm. And he said that you have the real protesters who are all about the movement and then you have these antagonists who are there just stirring up shit. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in media, the people who are the loudest, that's where the camera goes. So the camera goes to the people who are talking shit and not really about the movement. That's what they're videoing, and that's what's on CNN, you know? And he said, Pop, I'm actually glad you didn't go because had you been there and you saw somebody verbally assaulting your son, then the whole thing on CNN would have been two black guys fighting.
2: Right. Mm -hmm.
3: And that's not what was supposed to be going on down there at that point, you know? So... From that point on, I knew that I couldn't go down to any other protests because I didn't want to be there while my sons were there. Mm-hmm. So I just stayed away from it, you know. Um, but it's – I served 20 years in the military under Reagan, Papa Bush, son Bush, and Clinton. I've always voted Democratic, but I've never felt like being in the military at, at, at no point did I feel like – I was serving that commander-in-chief's personal interests. Right. Like, this motherfucker's taking advantage of people. Yeah. Yes, he is. So it's, for them, Um, like, after, um, I can't remember the man's name. And I feel bad about it. But they, they, they won and they got shot seven times in the back. Um, oh, uh, Jacob Kenosha. Blake. What's yeah. his name? Was it Josh? Blake.
5: Blake. Mm. I yeah. So Jacob Jacob Blake. Yeah. Right.
3: So th- I called Darren up and he's like, "Dad, you know, cuz he was really upset because his unit didn't really support him when, you know, he went down for the for the Floyd protests and stuff like that." And he said, "Dad, if they uh if they ask me to go back down there again this weekend for this protest that's coming up, he said, "I'm not going to go." And I said, "Well, tell me what happens if you don't go." He says, "Well, they are probably going to lock me up cuz I'll be dereliction of duty." I said, well, first of all, if you don't go, then they win. And the reason why I say that, and I told him, I said, your job, no matter what, is to make sure that you can get home every day to your kids. No matter what the fuck is going on, you have to come home to your son and your daughter. So even though you may disagree with the way your unit is treating you and, 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 and with the protest and stuff is going on, I said, you just have to make sure that you get home because at the end of the day, in the main scheme of things, if they can take a black man out of his household, then they fucking win because that's, that's, that's how you do it. You keep the family broken up and then those kids don't have a, a mentor to look up to and then they follow the same shit. So you need to just fucking go to work and bring your ass home, period, then. And that was just me, again, talking him off the fucking ledge like people have had to talk me off a ledge. So, being uncomfortable. You know, I had somebody who was befriended me on Facebook and they were, you know, always, you know, texting me and talking, I mean, Facebook messaging me about music stuff and really, you know, interested in it. And, and, and I thought that they were genuinely um, concerned about the movement. And he put a post on Facebook that says, so if you have somebody, a white guy, who's, who's, who's thinking that he wants to be a part of this movement, the Black Lives Movement, and, and he's all about it, but then you say you want to defund the police, which that's not what this is really all about. But then he gets uncomfortable and says, well, I'm for the movement, but I don't want to do that. That's not cool, because that's just worse. He says, what do you do? And I said, well. I, for me, I don't fucking have a choice because the current situation is killing me. So defunding the police or whatever you're going to do to it, that's an uncomfortable situation for you, but it's also uncomfortable for me the way shit is right now. Mm -hmm. So I don't got no choice. If you want to defund it, fuck it.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's a good point, right? Because the the argument, the political argument is, well, if we do that, what's going to happen to you? And the you they're fucking talking to is white people right? Exactly. That's a fucked up conversation to have because it's already just deciding that you you don't count as much, right? And, and I mean, like, for you, you to put it in the stark t- terms is, I mean, that's the basis of, of everything that's fucked about this, right? Like, the person that Trump is talking to when he says, you need to be scared because Democrats are coming, he's talking to white people that vote conservative, period. That's who he's talking to. And that's that's, that's not like that. That is inherently racist, right? There's no way around how specific that segment is that he's talking to. You can't walk around that. So you can, you can say whatever you want about nuance or, or hyperbole or whatever kind of bullshit that they like to, to espouse that, that, that what he's really saying is that's what's happening in that moment. There's no fucking way around that. And the, that's the most unsafe fucking thing that that, that you can imagine to have the, the leader of the country just from the beginning pit your problems as the opposite side of, of the discussion, right? I mean, that's incredibly fucked up. I, I don't know.
5: I can, I can throw a little point in here if you want, or not even a point. Something I heard today um, just, I thought, articulated the current situation pretty well in the sense that they said, you know, a lot of times we... There are conversations, or we hear conversations about, oh, if I were if I were around during the civil rights movement, I would have done such and such. It's like, well, we're here now. This is this is an extension of what was happening in the '60s and '70s and before that. So, to to that person you we're talking about on on Facebook and uh, just figuring out where your place in is this. It's it's not getting distracted by those kind of dishonest baiting baited conversations like where they latch on to like a phrase, like defund the police or, or latch on to the image of in most cases, you know, white instigators at these, uh, these rallies that are, are destroying property that have nothing to do with the movement that's happening. You're allowing yourself to be taken to take your eye off the ball of what this whole thing is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think it's something that we can all kind of maybe put in context and say that there's no if if then. I would it's you're in this moment now. What are you doing now to push the ball further down the field and create a more just society for everybody?
3: You, you know what, man um, the the ultimate fix for all of this for me, what I would say for one. Racism is not a gene that you're born with. It's a behavior that's taught. Right. Mm-hmm. And as long as people, I mean, when a baby is born, the first emotion that that baby sees is, is love. I don't think any woman has ever birthed a baby and a child into the world and said, "I hate you, motherfucker." That's never <laughs> that. That's never happened. Man, that's, you didn't know my mom. Possibly yeah. the the first emotion is 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 love. So the hate thing comes later. That's something that they're taught to do. And until we stop teaching hate to the to the next generation, we're gonna always have it. You know, I don't. It's one thing not to like somebody, but hate is different. Mm. Yeah. Like I there's a lot of people that I don't like and I just don't, you know, but I don't hate them. You know, I just we 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 see we see we see things differently. We're going to agree to disagree and I'm going to move on. Like when I see people post shit on Facebook that don't align with me, next. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel the need to engage that and try to right. change that. I'm with you on that. Just move on to the next shit. But you know, I just we got to stop. For one, we got to stop teaching hate. You know, um, to me, that's the beginning of it. And like like Eric says, man, in, in, his, in his record Peaceful, we got to love is is powerful. You know, love can love can move freaking mountains, and we. But it, but here's as it is. We love the wrong thing in this country. We love money more than we love people. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. That's a big problem.
4: Well, it encourages otherness. It right. Gives, it gives you somebody to blame if you're mm-hmm. out of work or, you know. I mean, that's just a simple example. But, I mean, it's, you know. Ah, I don't know where I'm going with that.
1: There's, like, a thing, Sorry. too, that, that Trump's, like, brought into the light and it's, it's horrifying that it was in the dark before, but now that it's out in the light, it's like, holy shit, it's everywhere. As there's like I, I remember growing up and hearing these things in like side conversations and little like disparaging comments that you don't really like when you're like, you know, a kid, you don't really process them as what they actually are. And you think about it later, and it's like, it's just, it's, he's taken this, like these backroom conversations amongst like, I don't know if, I don't know how to describe the people that I'm referring to without. Referring to the words you're looking for is racist, but but I know what you mean. There's like, there's (laughs) these things. There's this thing that happens, especially when you're a kid and you're growing up in like a crazy white environment, right? Like, there's just like people just say shit that you don't know what to do with when you're young. And I was like, at first, you just like, well, they're just saying stuff, and then you get a little older, and then you either become that or you go, "The fuck did you just say?" Yeah. And that's just how
2: that works. In fourth grade, I was legitimately upset to find out that North Carolina was in the South. That <laughs> 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 wasn't part of the Union. I was like, but it's it's North Carolina. Like what 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 are we even talking about? Like it was like it, and and I didn't understand why everybody in the whole class was like, yeah, that's fucked up. Like that was my first thought. It was like, oh, I was on the bad side. I was on the side that did Everything that I could not possibly agree with, and then, and then I just watched that idea be massaged into something that was just not not that bad, not that bad. And I'm like, no, it's real fucking bad, you guys. Like it feels real bad. <laughs> yeah, I still feel like it's pretty bad. And like fourth grade, like I knew, I fucking knew. I was nine, and I knew every nine year old knows. Just like you said, like I've got a nine year old and a six year old. They fucking know. They know. They, 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 they. My oldest, Aiden. We were having a discussion about what's going on. And he's like, why, why are people so upset? And I'm like, well, you know, these people have been treated incredibly unfairly for this this long amount of time. And it's, it's basically because of what they look like. And he, he looked at me and he's like, people still do that? Like, I, he couldn't believe it. He just assumed that it, had been, that it had to have been fixed because it's so unjust, right? There's such a lack of... Of equality in that in that idea of of any because the humans he knows all the other nine year olds look very different they all have their different you know races and backgrounds and 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 they're just somebody they they are they have a name you know he's like oh this person's Chris it's like he's not this is not black Chris it's just fucking Chris right he's a human and he's got no reason to define it that way there's no need for that in his life. And it just proves how ridiculous any of those characteristics ne- are, you know. Mm-hmm. But but how do you how do you how do you distill that kind of trust and that kind of love, and then give it back to people with with decades of of jaded, you know, built in learned hate? Like, how do you fucking change that?
1: Yeah, and off of that, like, think nobody, everyone thinks about like right now, right? They're like, oh, it's like why do blah 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 blah? It's like, are you not realizing that there is like. The entirety of America is the issue. Like, there's fucking... It's not just, like, today or yesterday. Like, this is systemic shit from the beginning, the outset of the fucking nation. Like, why...
2: And people, like, they just... Like, like, BJ, that was hundreds of years ago. Exactly. How could that possibly... How, like, you, you weren't there. I didn't own slaves
1: and blah, blah, blah. Well,
2: people act like 1968 was 200 years ago. No. Yeah. Right? Like and then they also act like one day in 1968 racism just fucking dissolved. They're like, oh, it's better now. Everything's cool. All those people that were real shitty, they're just not shitty anymore. Like that's not how that fucking works, and it still doesn't work that way, right? Like,
4: well, there's so many cultural portrayals that like racism's done that like that all happened. We solved that, and you know we're all good. And even now, like I've been watching some some movies out there that are sort of suggest that. What hasn't been resolved, you know, people are working on that, which I don't think people are working on it enough. And it, it lets people believe that they don't really have to participate because somebody else is doing it for you.
2: Or it's already been done. Or it's
4: already been done.
2: That's, I think, the more – speaks to the, where I came from in the South. Like, 1980s North Carolina, it's like, you know, they, they were they, – it was clear racism that everybody was just like, oh, this, is, this amount of racism is okay. Like – you know people not wanting their white daughter to, to date a black guy that you could just openly not be okay with that and it was just fucking fine that was 20 years after you know well, the, just, the just civil rights just movement. hold
1: on for a we're not trying to explain this to you guys we're just yeah. trying to oh i'm explain so, it to us yes. yeah we are <laughs> like, talking know, like, this yeah. this feels anyway, very like yeah
2: i don't know I, I just feel a way about that because uh, of of the, the the watching that go down where I came from and feeling appalled by it and then not understanding why everybody wasn't. Do you remember that movie
1: Crash? Did you guys watch that? Yes, I did. So at the time, I thought that movie was the dumbest thing ever because I thought racism was just obviously stupid and why are we considering this? And now in this time, it's like, oh, that's like, that was an incredibly needed message for a lot of the population that just didn't...
3: I'll give you guys an exercise. Okay. Next time you were... In front of your TV, surf from top to bottom, and see how many networks or how many channels have black people on them. And when you do come across black people on those networks or whatever it is you stop on, how are they being portrayed? Just just take a take a note of that. I I did that with my wife one night who's um white girl. And I just wanted her to see the shit that I see on a daily basis that a lot of people just don't see because it's not directed towards you. So she's been she's she's seen a lot now that we've been together that she's like, fuck. Really? And I just point shit out to her every day and it's like, fuck. I told her a couple of days, a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, we were having a moment. Um, and I said to her, you know, being a black man in this country right now, I feel really, really shitty when I leave my house without my security blanket, my white girl next to me, that I can't protect myself, that you need to be there just in case I get pulled over. That's a shitty fucking place to be. Yep. But it's a reality for me, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, like, racism is, is, is there, it's been here for a long time, there's some people who claim victim, like, I don't, I've, I've been a victim of it, but I'm not a victim, okay, in other words, and let me, let me see if I can make, make the point this way, if I'm running a race with a white guy, and we both have to run a mile. If I have to run it twice to get to, to make my mile count and he has to run it once, then I'm just going to run that motherfucker faster. That's all. But I'm not going to use the fact that racism is there as an excuse for me not to do shit. I'm going to fucking run. You know? I'll just run. Fuck yeah. And if I have to run faster, I just have to run faster. But I'm not going to let it... I'm not going to... I'm not going to use it as an excuse to do nothing. And a lot of times... unfortunately, it's a sad thing to say, but some of my black people will just use that shit as an excuse to do nothing. Fuck that. I come from Detroit, the inner city of Detroit. My brother's a doctor. My sister's a successful businesswoman. I got another sister who's very successful in the medical career. We came out of the hood. So it's not like it can't be done. It's just... The other thing I would say is my mom and my dad were both at home.
2: I saw him go to work
3: every day and come home every day to his family. And I wanted to be that guy. So, you know, it's it's some crazy shit, man, going on out there that people just don't, unless it's directed at you, you just won't ever see it. Unless somebody tells you. You know, you ain't gonna see it.
1: That's been a theme we've kind of talked about too. Certain things you just people can't comprehend, so they don't view it objectively in the way that it actually is. And you know, before it was, or money, they pretend
2: it doesn't exist at all.
1: Well, you don't you, if you don't see or experience evidence of it. Not, I'm believe me, I'm not fucking trying to justify uh-uh. that, obviously. But like, they just they they don't understand
2: the issue because right. it's just not in front of them. Like that perspective you laid out. If you're um, in a managerial position um, in a you know some sort of small level uh, corporation somewhere and you you're you're having to approve applicants for a job right and you haven't taken the time to be as aware as you're saying you know that that uh, willingness to to you know flip on the TV and see how how few people of color you might see and what kind of roles they're being portrayed in. Your perspective is, is like BJ said, just sort of unaware. And then you see some form of affirmative action, give a job to somebody who's a different color than you are. And you feel a certain way about that. That lack of information is what's fueling the the discourse there, right? Like that's more important than maybe any of the stuff that, that, um, you know that, that that comes back down the line about that. You know, uh, it, because like you're saying, like you're you're not afraid to work. You're not, and you don't want to see it as a, a reason to to not work. But then at the same time, um, that that person that is a, against affirmative action just because they don't have the perspective, I feel like that's where that's where the education would would make a difference, right? I, I, maybe not, but like I'd like to hope that 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 would, because that person feels like they have a legitimate. Uh, argument, right? They feel like they're seeing somebody being given a job just purely on the basis of race, and then they start this stuff about reverse racism and all mm-hmm. that bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. But but what they really need is education in that moment. I mean, or, or or is that the case? Maybe that's... I'm asking you that.
3: Let me see if I can... Let me do this. I've been, I've been doing a lot of reading since COVID. A lot of reading since COVID. And I've been reading this book that I think is... It's like is becoming my Bible, and I'm going through it the second time. But if you go, two things I'm going I'm to tell you. What this book called The Miseducation of the Negro. When slavery ended, and you had all of these freed African Americans in the South, that now America is responsible for educating. The white guy who just lost all of his slaves is going to teach this person now how to be an American in America. Right. So what the fuck do you think he's going to teach him? Nothing that's going to do him any fucking good. Um, that's kind of the, the basis of that book. And it just goes on and on and on in these different different realms and, and, and scenarios. But then the other one that I had read um, was uh, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. And this is just all about the mindfuck of African Americans. That during that time of slavery, when a when a child was born, within the first twelve months, even now of a child's birth, that's when you develop that relationship between for family with mom and the child and father and the child. Well. What the slave masters would do was as soon as that baby was born, separate them. So that woman has no feeling of attachment to a kid, and that kid has no feeling of attachment to her mother. And so now that's that's growing up in that in those generations. What do you think that's gonna do to a generation of people? You gotta get over that shit first, right? You know? And like I mean, it's 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 a lot of shit, man. I'm 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 just like everybody. I'm trying to process a lot of shit and it keep my freaking head I, sane. Yeah.
4: I want to bring up a question about the the idea of the victim and and that you talked about earlier. And you were fortunate that you did have your, your mom and your dad around. Um, I I taught in inner city Baltimore for a couple of years, and I guess where I'm going, you know, kind of looking at this is, I had these amazing students. Like, I, one, one student in particular who is one of the smartest people I've ever met, just intuitively, but he did not have that support growing up. I think his parents were gone. Um, he was raised for a very brief time by his grandmother, and then he witnessed her murdered. Um, and then he grew up in group homes. And came into the, the school system, which, you know, looking at it firsthand or witnessing it firsthand is a failing system, at least in, in inner cities. I mean, in some ways, it's just babysitting or uh, society's uh, justification or saying we tried to educate. And this kid ended up... I mean, I, I kind of tried to check up on him a few years later, like long after I was teaching, and um, it turns out he he got arrested is one of the largest heroin distributors on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So he had no family support, no societal support, no educational support. He's kind of a victim of our lack of care.
3: Absolutely he is.
4: So what, what, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, this is just for everybody. Like, how does he... Find his path. How does he, you know, not fall victim to this like trajectory?
3: And not everybody that comes from a broken home has that that. Road. No, certainly not. <laughs> you not know? you know. I, yeah, on, it just clarify a that. a lot of it. Just has to do with that that person. I mean, some people can can still be driven and still be you know successful and and, and do well for themselves. Um, and I, I've certainly seen both of those. I mean, I I have family members who have who have still. Been very successful with in a, in a single home um, situation. Um, I, I will tell you the night that I found out that I had to marry my wife. We were having a conversation in Atlantic City, and I hope I don't get in trouble for this for saying this about her. <laughs> we can edit, don't worry. We? But we she won't. was telling me about how her in her childhood now. When I the first time I met her, when she walked into a club, I was like, Oh, look at this seditious ass <laughs> freaking stuck up web bitch. That might be oh, the part well. we had it. That might be the part we had it. <laughs> well she but after she knows I she know I felt that way about I, I told her. I told her that's what I felt the first time I saw her. But the night that we were doing a gig in Atlantic City, um, and after the gig was over, we were sitting at a bar, and I just said, Well, Jenny, tell me about yourself. Tell me, what's your story? And she went into how crazy her childhood was and how bad a girl she was growing up and all the drugs that she had done in her life and, you know, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, but the term that she used, she said, oh, I did a shit ton of recreational drugs. And I was like, what the fuck is recreational drugs?
1: Oh, that's a pretty, oh, God.
3: And I said to her, I said, you know, I said, that's the difference. I said, what you just said right there is the difference in your world and my world. In the black world, ain't no fucking thing. It's no such, no such thing as recreational drugs, and in, in our community, that shit is survival. That's how you live, and it, and there's no, you don't get to go down that road, and and deal and and do it, and then just say, okay, fuck it, I'm done. I'm gonna go be a lawyer now. You don't get to do that shit. That shit ends in death and destruction, ninety nine percent of the time. Mm-hmm. That's the difference, and that's when I said, you know what, I I gotta investigate this girl a little bit more. And she just she was very interesting me to me, and we have learned and taught each other a lot about our different cultures and and how we were, had grown up, you know. Um, and and we do, man. We all. <laughs> One of the things that she said, and and some people have different thoughts on this, and and that's fine, for, and I you know whatever whatever gets you through. But when we first got together, she said to me, she says, I don't see color. I just I just think that we should just not see color and everybody should just be okay with that. And I was like, "Ah, wrong answer. Not for me. I'm not cool with that, because that's telling me that you can not accept me for what I am. I want you to accept me, but accept me for what you see. Look at me as an African-American and say, I'm cool with that. I love them. Period. When you go to a restaurant, the salad bar that draws you in is the one that's got all the colorful shit on it. Why can't we be like that? Right. Think about music.
2: Exactly. How, how much music do we all just draw our entire lives from? That came from anything and everything, exactly. especially African Americans. Like, like fucking, like the music we all play. So it's built on uh, you know uh, the the marriage of the poorest and the least advantaged people in our country coming together and sharing this oral tradition that had that, that nobody. that's the only thing they had fucking control over, and and that that. We, that turned into what we call American music. I mean, that's fucking incredible,
3: right? I I, I embrace color and differences and, and diversity. Mm-hmm. I don't have a, everything doesn't have to be gray for me to love it. And that's just that's my good, stance that's a, on it.
1: That's a good way to put that. I hadn't heard that before. Because everything is kind of like a gray, right? Everything is just sort of.
2: Just,
3: but some people all... need it to be all gray so that they can be like, okay, we now we can handle it. Yep. Why? Why does it have to be like that? It's easier.
2: It feels a bit disinfected to me. <laughs>
3: you know, it, it, I, I don't. I don't want to monopolize the whole podcast, but I, I'm a big picture guy. You know, and when you talk about you know the whole where we are in society, America has the potential to be a badass fucking country, but we're missing. I think that we're really, really missing one simple thing, and that is just if everybody at this table continued to feed each other, we would never starve. But instead, everybody's, anybody, everybody in the world is like this, holding on to the shit that they got. Mm-hmm. And when that shit that you got runs out, you ain't gonna get no more, because your hands are like this, too. So when I say I'm a big picture guy, I look at the country as, as a, like a pyramid, like a diamond. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got your one percenters up on the top who own all of this shit and got all the money. And then you got the base of that, that foundation down here, your, your middle class and lower class people who are just the consumers. Okay, the people who spend the money, right? These people up here are the ones that are f- afraid to death that these people are going to take their shit. So they don't send the money back down here. They keep it all up here. And because they keep it all up here, they have a cap on what they can do. So because you have that cap, you got to rely on other countries. That's why we have trade. Whereas if you send that money down to the lower rung and you keep these people down here, they don't want your shit. They just want to be able to, to, to get along and do their thing. But if you send that money down to the bottom rung and to those, 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 those and, and, and make sure that your your people on the lower rung are strong and they can spend money and support your corporations – then now you don't have a cap because you just keep sending it down to the bottom. Now, there's a community of people in this country that actually live like that. That's Jewish people. That's why at Abad Mitzvah and Abad Mitzvah, those those seniors in the family give money to the ones that are coming up. So most of your Jewish people don't have college debt because it's already paid. Nobody else lives like that. If the country had that philosophy, we would be a badass country. But it's this fear up here at the top that somebody's coming to get your shit. Darren's
1: fucking us up right now. I just can't, I got another.
2: <laughs> well, I actually wanted to um, uh, take a second to pivot to Eric a little bit and um, and and sort of get a different perspective on a, a similar experience. Um, not to put you, not to you know, not to. You, I'm not trying to tell you where to go with this. I'm just trying to open it up to, to your thoughts and your feelings. On all
3: yeah, I'm done talking for the night. <laughs> fucking pissed off now. <laughs> no, that, no uh, dude, we just
2: got you started, <laughs> man. <laughs>
3: <laughs> fucking pissed off. <laughs> B- you B- did it, BJ. He, <laughs> he pissed you off. <laughs> <laughs> fucking BJ. <sighs>
0: no, man, I, I've, um, I've found myself listening, you know, for the past 20 minutes, really. I mean, just, just to, to what y'all have to say. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a product of a biracial marriage you know and uh, it's funny that you mentioned 1968 you know because in 1968 I was four years old
3: oh wait can I just stop you right there Yeah. biracial meaning he came from a badass black man and a beautiful white woman and look what you got <laughs> oh, you got look, at, Scott. Look, at, look how beautiful look, That's look right. at this <laughs> nope. okay they weren't both gray
2: that proves it that there proves you go. it right there
3: I'm done <laughs>
2: there you go He's not done. (laughs) Not even close. Not even close.
0: No, but I mean, in in 68, you know, my my parents were both uh, 20 years old with three kids in the smack in the middle of civil rights unrest and racism. And the stories they have told me of what their life was like back then are just amazing. I mean, so that's why. I mean, I, I, I literally feel like I could write a book, you know, on racism growing up biracial in Southern Maryland with a lot of people, you know, a lot of backward thinking people, you know, I've dealt with it my whole life. My, my growing up was not easy for me. You know, having people look at me, I I wrote in a tune, um, several years ago, you know, don't color me with your eyes because that's what I felt like growing up. There were people were always what are you? I got used to that question being asked of me. What are you? A human. Right, 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 right. What are you? So, I don't know. I almost feel like that's for the next podcast. I mean, I, we could talk about. I have many, many, many opinions on racism, but um, it's been cool just listening. To Papa, you all can
5: you hear me?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Josh is has been You're cool back, Josh. listening to you all uh, talk about it. All I know, is, you know, this country 1968 was not that long ago, and in 1968, black people still could not sit at the same park bench as a white person they still could not ride the same bus as a white person you know we're talking about that's like one generation ago it's a huge black eye on this country it really is and we have a leader that will not acknowledge the obvious injustice and racism that that black people have been experiencing for hundreds and hundreds of years so therefore Unfortunately, there's a shitload of people that listen to him, you know, and it's just stunted our
2: ability to move beyond it. I really believe that. Um, It does feel like a major step back, right? Yeah, like four years of backpedaling as hard as we
0: could. Right, like like we may have been making some progress, but but I really think that this dude has created so much division, and his rhetoric is like you said, his rhetoric is so aimed at a certain sect of people. Mm and he he won't acknowledge anything else that's going on and like there's a lot of people that hang on his every word you know and it's a big part of this country so it's 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 held us back man from growing and and really addressing this problem and coming up with some hardcore solutions and moving beyond it so I don't know, man. <laughs> just, <laughs> it comes to this discussion. It's a just, lot, man.
1: It is. It is. It's just a and lot. I don't. I don't think he's really like sent us backwards. I think it, we were always there, and he's just allowed it. You know, like people are speaking their minds openly instead of privately. It openly.
0: has always been there, and uh, he certainly has not. He's not furthered the conversation. No, he has me, not I'm furthered sure. the conversation. That is very true. Yeah. It's, so there's it, not much that I can <laughs> add to it, really. I mean, I, I've you know, it's all been said
1: dudes we're almost at two hours this was fucking was like awesome. i missed a good time here <laughs> josh you fucking walked in at the end of some heavy shit yeah, that, was, that was a little
5: heavy
2: <laughs> yeah man I, well, I,
5: at least i got to come in singing so that's
2: nice so so before we wrap i'd like to thank you guys so fucking much for your time yeah like this oh, this is a discussion that i mean i could two hours felt like 15 minutes that really so. did that was a that was a good one
3: Oh, we could
1: go on. Yeah. Oh, we could definitely go, go on. on. We will. Clock, we will. This, this. 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 Will, if
2: yeah. you guys are willing, this won't be the last time. I think yeah. that we do this. If, if that's we something you're We could do a part two. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It feels like we did come to a crest. It feels like that wave found a place to land. Um,
1: yeah, Darren. Darren kind of.
2: He said the shit that he said. said the shit.
1: Yeah. It. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't know, Josh is. Uh, Josh is the only one that Zoom called in and the fucking phone died about an hour ago, and we just got Josh back <laughs> after all the all the important stuff was
2: discussed. Oh, should, do yeah, you, you yeah, guys want to want to mention anything related to you know music or anything you want to throw out there before we wrap? You know, like anything you want to say? We could do a speed round real quick. Yeah, yeah, we could okay. do that.
0: Favorite oh, bass amp. Favorite bass amp, uh, ampeg. <laughs>
1: Favorite ride cymbal.
3: Oh man <laughs> Next <laughs> That was
0: good That was good
3: I don't know um, I don't even know What the name Of that freaking thing is It's a Sabian Legacy 22 inch ride And I have a Zildjian K Dark ride Custom those those
0: right. are okay, I suppose. Oh, I didn't know we were going to like name the... Mo- I, th- oh, I thought we were just going to name the brand. I'm there's sorry. no rules. Yeah, there's no you rules. You did no, your really. version. You're right. You're yeah, right. That's, that's,
1: that's right. All right, so here's, here, this is a little very specific one. I know that when I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time, my life changed. Oh, my God. Drop the baseball bat, going to be a musician. What was your song?
0: That is so incredible that you mentioned that song because I remember exactly where I was when the first time that I heard that tune, man. It was in New York City. And I believe it was what was it? Ninety two and ninety one. Ninety one. But I think. But it, I was in this big ass church called. Uh, I forgot what it was called. But but that song came on on the loudspeakers, and you got to remember at that point we had never heard anything like that. We were listening to Poison and Cinderella and shit, and that shit came on and it, it blew my mind. But um, Kurt coaxed off the. Room. I can tell you the time when I knew I was going to be a musician, and I'll tell you this real quick. Um. When I was in 10th grade, I used to go see this band rehearse all the time. And I would just sit and watch and listen to them play. And I just started picking up the bass. And they had no lead singer. And uh, I would just listen to them play. And they, they had a party coming up, this big party that they were going to play as a, as a trio with no singer. And they're like, man, how are we going to do this gig with no singer? And I meekly raised my hand and said, I can sing. And they're like, You can sing. So I picked up the mic, you know, without even thinking about it, and I uh, just tried to sing as best I could. Anyway, I ended up doing this party with them as their lead singer Mm -hmm. on a Saturday night. I'll never forget it. Big party, a lot of people. That following Monday, I was walking through the hallway in high school going to lunch, and I heard this voice behind me say, hey, Eric, and I turned around, and it was Lisa Dunn who was this very popular bleach blonde <laughs> cheerleader. I love this fucking story. <laughs> yeah. So, much. This is a, such a true story. And she ended up being our homecoming queen as a senior. Very popular, real pretty. And I, she, she's like, hey, Eric. and I, The kind of girl who would have never, ever talked to me. And she said, hey, Eric. And I turned around. I said, hey, Lisa. And she said, I heard... That you sang at this party and you played at this party on I mean, and that you guys were great. <laughs> I was like, um, da, 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 da. <laughs> and she walked away, and that was the moment yes, when I it. knew. Uh, Eureka! That was it. That's
2: I said, I'm going to play. There's something to this music, though. <laughs> so, Darren, what about you, man?
3: What was the song?
2: Or Moment or whatever. Yeah, Moment.
3: Uh, it was the summer between middle school and high school. My brother had come home from college, and he brought all this new... We had always had music in the house as a kid. I mean, I had been playing drums, you know, just messing around because there was a drum set there. But he brought all this new music that I had not heard yet home, and it was a song by keyboardist, piano producer, whatever you want to call him, Bob James, and he had a song called Nightcrawler. And this one Saturday morning, I went down in the basement and I put the headphones on and I learned the drum part, note for note, lick for lick. And I played it. I mean, a whole day I spent just learning that song. And I have played drums ever since that day, every day. And the drummer on the track, I didn't know that he was the, the monster that he was at the time, but it was Steve Gadd. Mm. He yeah, i <laughs> yeah, and every sin- that was the one that that kind of hooked me was the- was playing that learning that song. That's
1: right. what hooked me. This is a very special question. Have you ever worn spandex on stage, oh my Eric? God. <laughs> <laughs> Are <you> kidding me? <laughs> the pictures. <laughs> uh, oh, there's fucking some amazing evidence. Oh of you. <laughs> my god! It, it,
0: when damn Facebook first came out, yeah, damn internet. When Facebook first came out, I didn't know that you could, you know, like. Erase a picture if somebody put it up, you know. And and they were posting all these pictures of me from the '80s wearing this shit, makeup, and all these spandex and shit. So the answer is yes, (laughs) Darren. Spandex.
1: Spandex. Oh
3: hell no, dog. All right. right. I mean,
0: not
1: on stage, man. All right. Just just for the record, Eric showed up in golf clothes. And Darren showed up in the coolest shit I've ever seen in my life. So we (laughs) got to.
2: All right, last question. First of all, Eric and golf clothes, still pretty (laughs) fucked. I know, it's pretty (laughs) fucked. I don't even know why you're talking so much shit. I've never seen you in a colored shirt before, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't fucking.
5: All right. uh,
2: And khaki
5: snowdrifts. BJ, some people own things other than band t shirts. Shut (laughs) (laughs) up.
2: Oh, it's funny because it's true.
1: All right. So, Eric, I got one last question for you, and it's up to you if you want to answer it. Can you tell us the story of the cool auto machine? Oh, my God. <laughs> that damn story. It's up to you. It's up to you, but I know oh. about it. so I, yeah, I want to hear
3: it. This too, I want to hear it. you never heard this story? Nope. I'm a drummer, and you have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've told this story many, many a time. It's This story has made the rounds. It, it literally has. But Cajun was a part of this story. Yes, and he I, was. Anyway, we did a show in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is when I played with Deanna Bogart. I don't know. I'm guessing maybe... I don't know, 2003, something like that, 2004, I don't know. Anyway, we did this show, two, Charlottesville's two-and-a-half-hour drive. Uh, when the show was done, on the way out of town, there was a 7-Eleven. I stopped at the 7-Eleven, get my little snack, fucking lock my keys in the car, man. I'm like, no, and this, you know. So I had my cell phone, and, I, and Cajun actually came behind me and pulled in the same uh 7-eleven mm. he's like hey brother how you doing?" he walks in i'm just standing there and he's like hey man i'm like cajun i locked my keys in the car man he's like fuck so the guy behind the counter but i had AAA, so the guy behind the counter allowed us to use the phone and call AAA. so they said they would take about an hour and i'm like and cajun's like well i'll wait with you man it's cool i'm like and this it's like at this time it's probably like one in the 1 30 in the morning I'm like, you don't have to wait with me, man. He's like, no, I'll hang out with you. I'm like, all right, cool. Well, we had our gig clothes on. Like, I had this black, I had this black glittery shirt. You know, my stage, my stage shirt. I had my stage shit on. And Cajun had his red leather jacket. So I love everything about this story. I, you see where this is going? So this is Charlottesville, Virginia, 1:30 in the morning, Saturday night. So we're just standing there. Reading magazines, you know, the dude let us hang. He's like, yeah, you guys can hang out. Just wait. I'm like, cool. So we're just reading magazines, just killing time. And these two dudes walk in drunk as shit. They walk in and they're walking around 7-Eleven, getting all their 1.30 in the morning, you know, munchies. And I could hear them laughing and snickering. <laughs> okay. You know when people are laughing and snickering at you. <laughs> right. You know, And that's exactly what they were doing. But I didn't pay pay them no mind. So anyway, so anyway, we were standing right behind the counter and they walked right past us. They got all their shit ding dongs and fucking they <coughs> ordered big bites and sodas. They. they got all their shit, you know, they're gonna throw down chips. <laughs> and, they <walked. laughs> and they put all their shit down on the counter and they're and they're ordering their you know, paying for their shit and we're just standing there, reading the magazine and they they pay for it gives them their change, and the dude was standing, like, right where you are next to me. Mm-hmm. And he turns around to me, and he looks at me in his Charlottesville, Virginia, Southern accent, and he goes, Bye, faggot. <laughs> oh, no And I looked up from my magazine, and, and they just started walking laughing. And I said, Hey, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho, What did you say? I walked over to him, and he stopped, and he looked, he looked at me, and he, he said, I said, Bye, faggot. And he was looking right fucking standing right in my face looking at me. And the blood just started boiling. <laughs> and, and he did this with his face like this. You know, he did this little, come on. Like, come on outside and do something. And I just stood there. And I took my fucking left hand. And I just, without even thinking about it, I, did, I didn't I did ball it up. I did a, a open-handed thing. And I just fucking spit. Popped him in his face as hard as I could. And I'm not kidding you, man. He probably flew about, Cajun will attest to this. He flew like 12 <laughs> feet in the air.
3: <laughs>
2: All the record, shit. Eric is like six foot six right. and just Eric. fucking, he's, right. you're not a small this human. Is no, not, I'm not a small Who dude. was this fucking idiot? I'm not the, the d- dude you said that to.
0: <laughs> no, and he was sta- and literally, he stood like up, he came up to like my chest, you know, and I just fucking popped him as hard as I could and he flew. Big bites flying everywhere. (laughs) Fucking big gulps. Fucking shit flying everywhere. He just, I launched him, you know, and he fell into the newspaper rack. Blam, blam, blam. It was a mess. But by now, by then, you know, I had just really lost my cool, and I walked over to him, and I said, and I was just, I just lost it, you know, and I was like, you motherfucker, man, and I, and he tried to get up, and I just grabbed his face, and I started pounding his face into the ground, and his friend was like, hey, man, leave him alone, and I looked at him, I'm like, you want some too, motherfucker, <laughs> and at that time, the guy was like getting ready to stand up. And I kept pushing him around. I pushed him into the door one time. And when his friend said that to me, he goes, you, I said, you want some too? His friend went to stand up. And this was the colada part. And I, and I pushed him. He was like almost up. So he didn't have his balance. And I pushed him as hard as I could. And he went face first into the colada machine <laughs> and broke the colada machine. He literally hit it with his face. It was awful. <laughs> God. Oh, he hit it with his face and he fell down and he and he fell down and he got up and he goes, wait a minute. And he held his finger up like this and he goes, I apologize. Oh. <laughs> that's a solid end to that story, man. Oh, that's I apologize. Story. So that was it. But I know that his, oh, God, I would hate to have been him the next morning because I, I tossed him around and I, I
1: punched wow. him up pretty good. And wow. It just sucks. I'm not proud Maybe of it.
0: Maybe some that. of that culotta helped, though. Well, right? Just just for
1: reference, there was one time at the, I think it was the Roger Waters show, I put on Eric Scott's watch, and it looked like I had a fucking clock on my wrist. So imagine <laughs> getting punched by the arm that holds a clock as a watch. And I don't think we can get better than that. So if we make Christian. Wow. Good night, mother progress. <laughs> <laughs>